The most important question we have to answer as Jews is, do we believe that the Torah is true? And by true, I mean authored by God as to, as, as to how it was dictated to Moshe, or not. Now the reason why this is the most important question is because everything that we do after we answer that question is governed by what our conclusion to that question is. If we are to determine that the Torah is indeed not authored by Moshe or not authored by God, authored by someone, then we have to actually relegate it to the status of other man-written works. It could be a fantastic work. It could be War and Peace. It could be Pride and Prejudice. It could be Odyssey. It could be a great work. But it's still a work of man. And thus, it has its fallacies, it has its limitations, and the scope is greatly narrowed. On the other hand, if it's authored by God, then there's a few things that are also uh, natural conclusions of that, uh, of that idea. For example, if it's authored by God, then we have no say in deciding what about it is divine and what about it is not divine. What about it is true and what about it is not true. So, for instance, today, in our society, we have kind of evolved or progressed or regressed, or everyone, we've changed. And thus, there are certain things that our grandparents would have thought of as unthinkable that our society today welcomes. And if those things are prohibited by Torah, we have to stand by the Torah as the Word of God irrespective of what our society tells us. So I can give you also a historical example. There are many societies that have looked at, a, at one of the first mitzvahs in the Torah, at circumcision, as being horrible mutilation of the human body. There are many societies in antiquity and even in modern times that have had that view. To us, it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah from God, and that doesn't change no matter what people think about it. We don't have the option or the liberty to take certain verses and take a scalpel and cut them out. Oh, this one's not the Word of God. Because if it's the Word of God, it's the Word of God. And thus, it all has the same steps. That's number one. Number two, it's, it's binding. This is probably the most difficult of the conclusions. If the Torah is given to us by God, if that's true, if we come to that conclusion, then how can we not wear tefillin? How can we not observe Shabbos? How can we not study Torah? How can we not put mezuzahs on our doors? How do we not do it? Every rejection of every word of the Torah is indeed an element of rebellion against God. As opposed to Torah is written by man, well then okay, it's nice suggestions, but I could have written a different book with different suggestions. It doesn't hold the eternal value like the Word of God. And this is why, by the way, it's a very difficult conversation to have, a certainly a different conversation, but even more difficult analysis and probe, because we have a lot of skin in the game. It's very hard for us to divest ourselves of our own biases on this issue. No one wants to feel that they're running afoul against God. No one wants to feel like that. So what happens if we say, oh, the Torah says... 
I'll give you an example. The Torah says, this is an example that's less biased for us. The Torah says, on the seventh year, you can't do any work in the land. You can't plow the land, you can't plant, you cannot uh, take out any weeds, you cannot harvest, you cannot reap, you cannot guard it, nothing. You're a farmer. You have little kids. You don't have a hedge fund dad or trust fund. You, you, you survive. You pay for your kids' education and food by being a farmer. Obviously, you know, that's a big challenge to ask you to take a year off. But if I come to you and say, this is the word of God, well, then what do you do? You're faced, you're between a rock and a hard place, as they say, right? It's a very difficult predicament. It's a very difficult challenge. It's a test. But you are incentivized to say, well, is it really the work of God? Well, does it really mean that? Now, that's, not a, that's not a real argument. Now, us, as, a, as outside observers, we see what's going on, right? We see, listen, the guy is presented with a big dilemma where his livelihood, in his eyes, is coming in conflict with the Torah. To say, well, you know, and he's making all these cockamamie arguments, not because they're actually based upon sound reason, rather because he is trying to defend himself. He's a caged animal. You know what I mean? He's put in a corner, and he's responding not out of reason and logic, but rather out of fear. So we have to realize that we too are going to be caged animals. All of us. If you're observant, what do you have to worry about, right? Well, you know what the Torah says about people that waste a second of time? Not studying Torah, or not doing mitzvahs, or not doing what they're supposed to do? You read, we have this week's Parsha. Now, the Torah is very, very clear that we have to dedicate our lives to God. Being quote-unquote religious doesn't exonerate you. We're all on the hook, all of us. And therefore, we're all going to be biased. And we're all going to have a very hard time actually navigating this area, or this issue, faithfully. Because we have inherent biases. No one wants to think that the life that they are living, the choices that they're making, the decisions that they're implementing in their lives, is wrong. No one wants to do that. Everyone's always rationalizing. Uh, And therefore, we have to realize that this is a very, very heavy-laden discussion. Uh, it's, a, it's a loaded discussion, as they say, because the implications of the Torah being given to us by God are really terrifying. That's the truth. I want to also just point out that the other side, the other option, is even more terrifying. The thought of us being put in a world without any guidance, without any direction, without any vision, without any universal plan of where humanity is heading towards that is, I think, even more terrifying to think that we're living a life and it's just barreling towards a conclusion that's going to be our death and the end and blackness and darkness and nothingness and we're gone forever. It's even more terrifying. Thus, we should be comforted by the fact that, yes, we made mistakes. And yes, we did things to God that we wouldn't do to a king or we shouldn't do to a king. And we should regret and we should try to do repentance for it. But we're better off being quote-unquote sinners or partial sinners in the eyes of God than being this random, 
collection of atoms, just hair, with a consciousness knowing that it's just all a race to nothingness. And I think that that's very comforting. So let's try to balance the scale a little bit. Uh, but our awareness of the inherent biases that everyone brings to the table in this discussion really makes us understand why some people really jump to outrageous conclusions, preposterous conclusions, only to defend themselves, so to speak. We have a world that is at the perfect distance from the sun, temperature-wise. You know, humans can survive in a very, very thin band of temperature. If it's 150 degrees, we're dead. If it's 50 degrees below zero, we're dead. We have this very small sliver of kind of temperature that, we, that we're good at. And Earth is perfectly positioned at the right distance away from the sun to make it just warm enough, just cool enough, and all perfect. And we have so many of these conveniences on our planet, like the wind. If we didn't have wind, by the way, we'd all be dead. If we didn't have earthworms, we'd all be dead. Certainly, if we didn't have livers, we'd all be dead. All these are just super nice conveniences for the non-believer. For us, we see it as God tailoring our world to perfection. But what happens to someone who doesn't want to believe in God? Why? Because that's too daunting, too terrifying. Well, they'll have to explain how is it possible to get a world with over a trillion different, distinct organisms, how does that come into being out of nothing? We don't even know how to make one hydrogen atom. We don't know how to do it. You don't want to hear know how to make like an electron? Hydrogen's very, very simple, right? You got one electron, you got one proton, and you have one neutron. Simple. It's very simple. We don't know how to do that. If you have a glass of water, you know how many trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of electrons, of, of, of hydrogen atoms there are inside here? In one teaspoon of water, five milliliters of water, you have more hydrogen atoms than there are teaspoons of water on our planet. Imagine you take all of the Pacific Ocean, teaspoon, 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 right? How many billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of, of teaspoons? You have more hydrogen atoms in a single five milliliter teaspoon of water. You got more of them. And we don't know to make even one. We don't, we don't know. We have no idea how to make, make even one. And just having one hydrogen atom is nowhere near having even one cell. Because right? a cell, a single human cell, contains the entire human genome, which is a very simple string of three billion pairs of protein bases. It's unimaginable, right? But if you don't believe in God, all that has to come into existence without God, obviously by definition. How does that happen? How do we have trillions, or a trillion by estimations, uh, recent estimations, different distinct organisms how does that come into being? I just explained to you. I have no idea how it even happens. It's, 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 and, and the conclusions are preposterous. 
And what's ironic about it is the people that are the creationists, as they're labeled, they're the ones that are the wackos in the world. We're the wackos. Yet they have to develop a solution that is just outrageous and preposterous and mathematically infeasible. And we don't. They have no way of explaining any of their beliefs. No way of doing it, because you know what? It's not possible. It's not possible to even do it if you tried. Much less, if you didn't try, how impossible would it be? Remember, you only have 3.5 billion years, which is, relative to what you need to accomplish, very, very little amount of time. So we see that biases are going to color the outlook and the thought patterns of people. You know, if you want to believe something, if you need to believe something to survive, you'll find a way. You know, if you were a lawyer trying to defend your own child who has criminal capital murder cases, you'll, you'll convince yourself. It doesn't matter. Your life will find a way. You'll find a way to believe what you need to believe if it matters so much. We have to realize that everyone has a bias because to us, it's much easier to say something well, 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 not think about it and say something preposterous if it defends, so to speak, what we already believe or what we already behave. I'm like, ah, I'm good, you know. I go to shul all the time. I'm, I'm one of those people who show up to shul. Everyone else doesn't show up to shul. They're the ones who God's going to take on first, right? That's what we tell ourselves. We're so easy. We're so quick to deflect controversy or, or, or criticism from ourselves because that terrifies us. We have to realize that when we approach this question of the authorship of the Torah, it's a very important, I think it's the most important question that Jews have to face. We're terrified of facing it because we know what it means for us. But we have to also realize, like I said, the, the alternative is preposterous, as we'll try to demonstrate with evidence, but it's also more terrifying. And I think if we realize that there's two terrifying options, but one of them is even a little bit more terrifying, maybe then we can try to approach this with more balance. So we already spent uh, two lectures talking about the accuracy of the Torah, especially in light of Bible criticism, which is the whole idea of questioning the authorship of the Torah. We went through uh, various responses that we have as Jews. Now we're not going to so much be responsive or reflexive. We're going to actually try to understand the Torah and what the content of the Torah is, and try to look at the positive spin of what the Torah says, and really try to imagine, would the Torah say that if it was authored by humans? Clearly, I think there's a few kind of psychological arguments that need to be made. We made this briefly last week. I'll repeat it again. Uh, That is the idea of the author of the Torah was either God or an anti-Semite. Uh, because if a human wrote it, they might have tried to find something nice to say about the Jews. And you look at the Torah, that Abraham is reprimanded, all the forefathers, Joseph is selling it, is being sold as a slave, and Judah has this lustful encounter with his own daughter-in-law, and even Joseph is not presented in the best of light. And Moses is repeatedly, again and again, castigated. It's, it's incredible how many times Moshe is, uh, is reprimanded in the Torah. The Jewish people themselves as a nation are described as a stiff-necked people. 
right? They sin again and again and again. They regret going after God. Their ingratitude is, is overwhelming. They tell God, oh, tell Moses, why you take us out of land? But there are not enough graves in Egypt. Can you imagine someone saying that? Only a human who hates Jews would write that. Especially when you realize that at that time, certainly in the ancient histories that we have today, they are completely one-sided. If you read ancient Assyrian history or ancient uh, Egyptian history, even if you read Greek history and Roman history, right, they always present themselves in the best of light. Even in modern times, but certainly it's, it's augmented in ancient times. They never lost a war. Their leaders were always flawless, even deities, benevolent and kind, always winning every war. And even uh, Sancheira, for example, we even have today uh, in the British Museum, they found these incredible inscriptions of Sancheira surrounding Jerusalem and you know, destroying the people of, the nor- of northern Israel uh, initially, but surrounding Jerusalem. And I got Chizkiel, like a caged bird. We have that. We actually have that. He, does, he actually doesn't mention he destroyed Jerusalem because he didn't, as we know, through the Torah, through the Bible, that is. Uh, but you see something which is entirely divergent. You see a book that is the book of the Jewish people, undeniably so. It's the book of our nation. And if it was written by a human... It was written by someone who hates us. There's a few redeeming sentences about the Jews in the Torah. I'm not going to say it's all negative. It says that we are a mamlechas kohen immigrant kadosh, we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Maybe it says that banim atem Hashem lokechem, you are children to the Almighty God, and therefore you shouldn't stretch yourselves over a dead person. There's a few choice sentences about the Jewish people that are nice. The rest of it, yeah, almost entirely presents us in a negative light. So you have to explain to me why with the book of the Jews authored by a human, should it be authored by a human, why would it be so negative about the Jews? But also, you have to also explain to me how would this hater of Jews, certainly a criticizer of Jews, a basher of the Jewish people, how would he convince the Jews to adopt this book as their own? Can you imagine? He comes to the nation. He says, oh, I have a book for you. This is a great book. This should be your book, your nation's book. Hmm, let's read what it says about us. Oh, what? What do we, what do we want to do? Well, ooh, goodness gracious. Maybe we should edit that out. No, but it's all there in the final book. Pretty remarkable. So that's important to realize is that if it's written by a human, it's written by uh, someone who's very, very critical of the Jewish people. And it's one of the great miracles if you do not accept divine authorship of the Torah, one of the greatest miracles in history is the fact that someone who wrote these things about the Jews managed to get the Jews to accept it. What I want to talk about today is a very important cog in this whole discussion. Shavuos is labeled in Jewish liturgy, in Jewish literature, as Zman Matan Torosenu. The time of the giving of our Torah. It's the holiday of the Jewish people giving the Torah. Now, what is actually so significant about what happened on the holiday on Mount Sinai with regards to getting the Torah? We know the Jewish people actually received mitzvahs way beforehand. Not way beforehand, but a couple of weeks before that. The Jewish people in Mara, right? The first place where they went to after 
They left the uh, splitting of the sea site. They went to Mara. And in Mara, they received several mitzvahs. So it wasn't the beginning of the Jewish people receiving the mitzvahs. They get to uh, Mount Sinai. They're told in a couple days, you're going to have the revelation at Sinai. And then they receive ten more mitzvahs at Mount Sinai. And Moshe disappears onto the mountain. So we have ten mitzvahs given to the Jewish people on the holiday of Shavuos. Why would those ten mitzvahs be so significant as to that day being labeled the day of the Jewish people receiving the Torah? Indeed, Moshe came back afterwards and he told us hundreds of mitzvahs. Shouldn't maybe the day that he told us the most mitzvahs be the day of receiving the Torah? Why is the day where we didn't get the first mitzvahs, we didn't get the most mitzvahs, why is that day considered the day of receiving the Torah? Now clearly, we didn't receive the written Torah on Shavuos on Mount Sinai. That came only later. Obviously, if they did receive the written Torah, right, it's outrageous to think so, but certainly the Jews wouldn't sin a month and a half later with the sin of the golden calf if they got an advanced copy of what's going to happen. Clearly. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that the Jewish people received the written Torah. Either there was Moshe wrote it incrementally or Moshe wrote it all the way at the end. But either way, they didn't get it. They didn't get advanced knowledge of events, of narratives of the Torah before it happened. Now, even the oral Torah, which is the actual mitzvahs themselves and how to fulfill them, that the Jewish people also did not get at Mount Sinai because, remember, they have the Ten Commandments and Moshe draws up the mountain. And they spend 40 days at the foot of the mountain waiting for Moshe to come back. And, of course, they make a miscalculation and they go crazy when he doesn't come back when they think that he should have come back. What is about this holiday that renders it to be the holiday of receiving the Torah? So I want to give two answers. Uh, Firstly, the first answer is that, indeed, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you actually find all of Torah condensed into the Ten Commandments. In fact, we're told in the Midrash that if you actually analyze the Ten Commandments themselves, they're a very highly concentrated version of all 613 mitzvahs. Not only that, the first two of the Ten Commandments contain all of the whole Torah in an even more concentrated format. How so? If you actually notice, the Jewish people got 613 mitzvahs. 611 of them we got from Moshe. And two of them we got directly from God. And why the Jewish stop people not hear all of them from God? Wouldn't that be a more convenient way of learning? Straight from God, right? Who's a better teacher in the world? Why do we learn them all from God? Because the Jewish people heard it from God, and they got so overwhelmed, they died, they had to be brought back to life. And they said to Moshe, this is too much for us, this is too overwhelming for us, you teach us. Okay, if it was too overwhelming, why don't they stop after one? Why do they have to hear two from God? And if they can hear two, let them hear them all. The answer is the Jewish people, in fact, humans, are not primed to experience prophecy unless they're prophets. If you gave us prophecy right here, right now, you know what would happen to us? We'd die, which is unfortunate. You know what happened to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai when they experienced prophecy in the first, command, in the first of the Ten Commandments? They died. With the exception of the people that were actually on the level of prophets. They hear the first commandment, they die. The Almighty brings them back to life. This is by the way the Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos. <coughs> brings them back to life 
And he gives him the next commandment, they die again, they brought back to life, they say, Moshe, okay, Atkan, too much, die, right? It's enough. You tell us. So if they died after one, why not stop then? The answer is that the first two commandments, I'm the Lord your God, you should not have any other gods, really contain all of Torah. Because every mitzvah that we do, we do it because God told it to, to us to do it. Thus, when you do a mitzvah, you are fulfilling the first of the Ten Commandments. When you reject a mitzvah, when you transgress, that has an element of idolatry to it. Because you are kind of slapping out of the face. You're saying, no, I'm not interested in listening to you. I have some other priorities. Well, okay, if you have, if you have something, other priorities higher than God, well, that's idolatry. So indeed, the Jewish people had to hear all of Torah from God himself. You could say that the Jewish people indeed heard everything from God in a very highly concentrated form. Thus, we can also, and the Ten Commandments is, even, is also a highly concentrated form, but maybe a little bit more fleshed out. And perhaps we could say indeed that the Jewish people did receive all of Torah at Mount Sinai because they heard the Ten Commandments. And thus they heard everything. That's answer number one. Answer number two, I think, is a little bit more relevant to us. The Jewish people heard all of Torah besides for the first two mitzvahs, from Moshe. Moshe was a prophet. Thus, when Moshe told us, God told me to bring these sacrifices, every morning you bring this sacrifice, afternoon you bring that sacrifice, on the holidays you bring that, right? All the details of all the sacrifices. Moshe told it to us, but Moshe is just a funnel. He's just a channel. He's just a conduit of God himself. But how do we know that Moshe is a real prophet? Maybe Moshe is duping us. Maybe Moshe is a fraud. Maybe Moshe is a charlatan. Maybe Moshe is a hoax. Maybe he's making up stuff on his own. How do we know that he indeed is hearing from God what God told him? Maybe he's not hearing anything. We have no way of verifying, right? Indeed. Maybe the Jewish people didn't get all of Torah at Mount Sinai. They got a concentrated virgin. All of Torah they got over 40 years with Moshe. But at Mount Sinai, Moshe became a verified prophet. This is very critical. Moshe became a prophet that everyone knew that he was a real prophet. And I'll explain what I mean here. Let's look at Exodus. Exodus, let's look at it. I'll read you the verse. God tells Moshe, this is in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. God said to Moshe, Behold, I am going to come to you in the thickness of the cloud in order that the nation shall hear when I talk to you, and in you they will believe forever. The verse tells us, why do the Jewish people believe in Moshe forever? Why the book of Deuteronomy of Moshe is telling us Torah? And in Vayikra, Leviticus, and in the book of Numbers, the end of Exodus, in Bereshus. Why do we believe Moshe? Because of God speaking to Moshe with all of us in attendance. We experienced prophecy alongside Moshe. We were elevated temporarily and unnaturally 
inorganically to the level of, of, of prophecy. We couldn't handle it. We died. We had to be brought back to life. That's a not normal experience of prophecy. So this is, this is interesting. This is a verse. The verse tells us the reason we believe in Moshe as being a true prophet <laughs> is because of the Mount Sinai experience. Thus, perhaps we can say by extension, the reason why we believe Moshe all the way later on is because of Mount Sinai. And this is going to be very germane to our subject because the question of why we believe in the authorship of the Torah as being different, being divine, different than any other book, hinges, I think, also, largely, on the fact that we got it from Moshe and we experienced something that no nation has ever experienced nor claimed to have experienced, which is very critical. So let me read you the Rambam. The Rambam, in the laws of the foundations of Torah, he outlines the ideas of prophecy and he explains why the Jewish people believe Moshe. He says like this, The Jewish people did not believe Moshe because of all the miracles that he did. So by the way, as a side note, if some guy says, Oh, J.C. walked on water. Believe him as a prophet. No. I was by an event on Sunday night, and there was a magician, and he did things that I had no idea how he did it. And you know what? It was wonderful and entertaining, but I never for a second questioned as to whether or not he's a prophet. How, do we, how he does things? I have no idea. But that doesn't prove, it, doesn't, doesn't prove anything. Why? If you believe in a prophet because of a miracle, says the Rambam, you always harbor a feeling of doubt, a dubious skepticism in your heart. Maybe the guy did a trick. Moshe turned all the water of Egypt into blood. It's a miracle. Yes. And, but I have no idea how he did it, but it's a miracle. He must be a prophet but there's still a slight feeling of doubt. Maybe he did some sort of trick. Maybe he's the greatest magician that's ever lived. Fine. And the Rambam continues. All the miracles that Moshe did were all functional miracles. There was utility in every miracle that he did. Here's an example. Right. The Jewish people needed water. Moshe turned the bitter water into sweet. The Jewish people needed water. He hit the rock. He announced the manna because the Jewish people needed to eat. Uh, he had, the Jewish people were surrounded by their enemies. He had to split the sea. The Jewish people were subjugated and subjected and enslaved by the enemies. He had to beat them down uh, to submission. He had, to, he had a rebellion of Korach. They had to be swallowed up in the land. Etc., etc. So why did the Jewish people believe in Moshe? Says the Rambam. Because our eyes saw. No one else saw. Our ears heard. No one else heard. We didn't believe anyone else. There's all that second party testimony. Third party. We saw the fire. We saw the sounds. We saw the visions. And Moshe is approaching the mountain. He's approaching the clouds. And the voice speaks to him. And we hear him. Moshe, Moshe. Leich amor lehem Moshe, Moshe, go tell the Jewish people such and such. And so it says, as it quotes, he quotes another verse, that the Almighty spoke to you face to face. The Jewish people experienced prophecy in tandem with Moshe. And it says, it quotes another verse, that the Almighty didn't just have some sort of agreement with our ancestors that we have to accept based upon tradition. Rather, he spoke to us, 
So we don't believe Moshe because of some sort of miracle. We believe him because we indeed were uh, witnesses to his prophecy. Now this is something that's very unique in the annals of all religions, and indeed in all books of religion. We don't find another example where a revelation that kicks off a religion happens in such a public setting. We don't find Muhammad and three million Arabs have prophecy. It's all Muhammad, you know, while he's asleep, right? And we have to, we as in the Muslims, have to accept his word on faith. It's not J.C., it's not Joseph Smith on the mountains of upstate New York, right? No one's seen these tablets. The people that claim to have seen the tablets all say, oh no, he paid us off, right? The whole, you know, we, we don't have that. We have a nation of millions experiencing prophecy together with Moshe, thus solidifying his status as a true prophet and thus receiving the whole Torah. Because this is a prerequisite for Torah. Remember, if you have a Torah that's not from God, it's not a Torah. It is up for debate. It is up for amendation. It is up for nullification. You have a law. Any law that humans can craft, it's if humans can come up with it, humans can undo it. That's not Torah. Torah is the word of God. We have no oversight. We have no capabilities to try to alter it. There's no uh, three-quarters of the states will vote on it. We can't amend it. It's Torah. We believe in Torah, that the Torah that Moshe gave us is because of Mount Sinai. But this also gets to the founding of our religion. Our religion was founded different and unique to every other religion. And someone has to explain to me if they want to lay the claim that the, that the book of the Jewish people, indeed the stories and the episodes of the Jewish people, are all contacted by charlatans, they have to explain to me, how do you get people to believe this? How do you get people to believe that they saw something that they didn't see? And let me ask you another question. Why don't other religions have this same model of God prophesizing to the masses? Isn't that like... A, more powerful, don't you think? Don't you think if Islam really wanted to conquer the world, God should have spoken to everyone, not just to Muhammad? Isn't there room to maybe suspect that maybe Muhammad's lying? We know people that lie. Maybe Muhammad's lying. Is it possible? Everyone has to agree that it is possible. The question that a reasonable logical assessment of the facts would say, well, it's possible he's lying, it's possible he's telling the truth. But either way, it's much more powerful if we have a prophecy with to the eyes of millions. Why doesn't every other religion adopt that? The answer is, is that it's impossible to falsify because they didn't have that. What would happen if Muhammad said, well, you know, going to recruit people to engage in his war of conquering the world and you know, putting the flag of Islam everywhere? Wouldn't he say, hey guys, you remember you guys all saw the prophecy together with me? Wouldn't that be more powerful? Wouldn't that give him more traction? Obviously, 
You think it might, right? But well, so why would he not do that? The answer is, is that it's impossible to sell, right? If God appeared to everyone, everyone would remember it. Thus, Muhammad wouldn't be able to do people into, into following him because they would know he's a fraud. Because they didn't experience this prophecy. And if no one ever heard of it, the neighbors ever heard of it, the parents ever heard of it, their cousins, no one's heard of it. Right? Obviously the guy's a lunatic. But you tell me. Yet the Jewish people managed to pull it off. Thus, the hoaxers, according to people that reject divine authorship of the Torah, the hoaxers, people that do not accept divine authorship of the Torah, the hoaxers that wrote the book somehow managed people to get people to believe it somehow managed to disseminate it to Jews living all across the world. Because remember, at the time of the alleged redaction of the written Torah, it had to, the Jewish people already all across the globe. So that's never been explained. Not only that, you have to find a way to get people to believe in a book that makes them look terrible. And you have to get the people to believe that they all experienced something that they didn't actually experience. Thus, it's, Obviously false, the second you read it, it becomes false. We actually have the testimony of millions of people. How so? Think about this. We know the Jewish people, as far as we can remember, observed the Torah steadfastly. Every jot and tittle of the Torah. They believed it was true even though if it wasn't true, if they didn't experience this sign, if they didn't have the tradition, they obviously would have known it's false. Thus, you would never have had people believe it. Thus, the fact that we find in antiquity, and even till today, that our Jews observing the Torah, and we find millions of Jews today and millions of Jews over history, and in fact, that notion of a Jew not observing the Torah is a brand new thing. A Jewish community that has ignored adoption and observance of the Torah, that's a relatively new thing. It's a couple hundred years old. We have historic accounts of millions of people observing the Torah. Why would they observe the Torah? Because they believe it's true. Thus, this narrative in the Torah of a nation experiencing prophecy together in unison is indeed testified to us by millions of people. Because otherwise they wouldn't have observed it. Remember, if you find evidence that the Torah is not true, the first thing you do is stop observing it. If the Jewish people had, had evidence the Torah was fabricated, was a hoax, they wouldn't have observed it. Yet the Torah makes the most bold and audacious claim in the history of organized religion, and indeed in the history of humans, that a nation of millions experienced prophecy together in unison at Sinai. That is unprecedented, and the observance of the Torah, in spite of that, is indeed ample evidence to its veracity. Now I'll tell you something else really cool. You know what it says in the book of Deuteronomy? Chapter 4, verse 32. It makes a claim that is eye-popping. It kind of issues a challenge. Listen to this challenge the Jewish people are getting. Quote, You might inquire about times long past. From the day that God created man on earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. Has there ever been anything like this great thing? Or has anything like it been heard? 
investigate. Do you find anything like this? Which thing? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fires as you have heard and survived? The Torah is telling us. We are telling you a story in the Torah. It's a story that you guys believe that no one else will even claim to have. And that is the Mount Sinai experience. No one else, don't go look, tell me, find you even today. It's a challenge. Find to me a nation that makes that claim. Why are we the only nation that makes that claim? The only logical conclusion is that the reason why nations like that don't make that claim is because it's not possible to make that claim. Because the second you make that claim, unless it's true, Right away, everyone knows you're fraud. You're a fraud. Right away. Because if they didn't experience, they would know you're a fraud. I cannot convince you that you experience. Maybe one person I can, if they're really gullible, or I have really good hypno, hip, hip, hypnotic ability, maybe. To convince a nation of millions of stiff-necked people that they saw and they experienced prophecy with their own eyes, together with Moshe, and that didn't happen, is impossible. And that's why, hint, hint, no one's ever made that claim. Because you cannot make that claim unless it actually happened. And indeed, the Torah tells us, and it makes a challenge, go ahead, inquire about times long past, from the day that God created man. Go back in history, look at the annals of history, find me a nation that makes that claim. Where, where, are the, where, where is that nation? From one end of the heaven to the other end, has, it, has there ever been anything like this right thing? Has this experience ever been replicated? Listen to this. These words are critical. Or has anything like it been heard? Has the experience been replicated? Or even the claim of the experience, has that been replicated? Even a false claim is not possible. Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fires as you have heard and survived? Has it happened? Out, outside of us? It hasn't. Let me ask you a question. I'll pose the question. Let's assume that we are the council of wise people writing the Torah. We're so clever. We're going to dupe these Jews into believing it. Somehow we'll manage to get them to accept it. Somehow we'll manage to get them to accept it, even though it says bad things about them. Somehow we'll get them to accept it, even though it says things that people are naturally going to want to refrain from doing, like mitzvahs of giving charity and giving 10% of our... Who wants to do that, right? Even though it says very, very harsh things, like stopping to work every seven years. We're going to convince them. You know what we're going to do? We're going to convince them that they saw a prophecy. They, they themselves, they themselves saw a prophecy. Millions of people saw it. Never happened, but regardless and irrespective of that, we're going to convince them. We're so clever. But you know what we're going to do? We're also going to write a clause in the same book that says that no one else is ever going to make this claim. We can do it. We're so clever. No one else can do that. Why would they do that? By definition, only an imbecile would do that. Only an imbecile would think that they're the only one that's so clever to get a nation to believe a historical event of this size, but no one else will be able to do that. Otherwise, 
if I can convince a nation that they experience prophecy as a nation, I should be smart enough to know that someone else could probably replicate that as well. Thus, I would never write that no one else will ever do it. Because if someone else does it, well, my book is invalidated. So from the fact that the Torah itself says this happened, no one else says that. And it says no one else will ever make this claim, it means that the author of the book was aware that no one else in history would make that claim. Think about it. If you're the human or the group of humans making up this claim, creating this great fabrication, this hoax, pulling the wool over the eyes of the silly Jews, why would you open yourself up to immediate and total obsolescence by making a claim that no one will ever make that claim? You would be crazy to do so. Once again, if you are questioning or if you are entertaining the idea of a human author to the Torah, you have to find an author that is simultaneously the most brilliant genius around, to be able to organize Torah and, and mitzvahs and laws and morals in a way that dominates the world thinking till modern times. You have to be a great genius to weave it all together. Yet you have to be so silly and so foolish simultaneously. It's, there's no other way. And you have to be a raging at the Semite, as we said. Indeed, it becomes, the more we study about this, it becomes more and more preposterous to believe that a human author of the Torah, you have to really jump through hoops of, of just ridiculousness to bolster your claim. Uh, of course, the people who have a bias and thus need to come to that conclusion will use all methods of textual and logical chicanery to try to substantiate their claims. But indeed, if we actually analyze it and we try to be fair with it, as difficult as that, as that is, we will come to the conclusion that it is ridiculous and preposterous and outrageous to think that a human could have written this document. Indeed, next week we will continue because there is a lot more abundant evidence. If there, was no, if there wasn't enough evidence till now, there is more ample and copious of this kind of evidence forthcoming. I look forward to seeing you all next week.